Well, good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And I want to say thank you to Carter for that reading. It was another challenging reading this week with, with lots of tricky place names, and uh, we're grateful for your willingness to lead and to serve in that way. We're in the second week of a new sermon series about worship, and today we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit fills the church. So these first two weeks of our series really lay a foundation for worship, and then starting next week, we'll, start, we'll, we'll begin to talk about some of the aspects of our Sunday services that really reflect larger realities in our lives as disciples of Jesus. When we worship, in John 4, it says that we are to worship in spirit and truth, and we need the Holy Spirit to do that. In verse 4 of our reading, it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I love that question towards the end of our reading, where they asked themselves, they were amazed and perplexed, and they asked themselves, what does it mean? Well, we're going to ponder the meaning of Pentecost this morning by looking at the three signs that we have in this passage we've read. First of all, there's wind. Secondly, there's fire. And third, there are tongues. And by that, I mean the different languages that were spoken. So wind, fire, and tongues. In verse 2, it says that suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So that's the first thing, a violent wind. If you flip back a page to the first chapter of Acts, there's this scene after Jesus is taken up into the clouds. We call it the ascension sometimes. And the disciples are left staring up into the sky. It's, it's almost comical. A couple of angels have to come along and tell them to continue as they were. Well, now, here at the beginning of chapter 2, something comes down from heaven. And it sounds like the blowing of a violent wind. Notice that it came from outside. This wasn't an internal experience. They all felt it, they all heard it, they all saw it. It didn't just come from outside of them, but also from outside of the whole world. It came from heaven, we read. And so to be filled with the Spirit means to have a divine power come from outside of you and enter your life. Not just a kind of emotional or psychological experience within you, and that is going to immediately put us on a collision course with our culture. Our culture says that all our problems come from outside of us and that we have the solution within us. Christianity says that your main problem comes from inside you. But out there, beyond you, way beyond you, God has the power to give you what you need. How often have you heard someone, maybe a talk show host, an inspirational speaker, a rock star at a concert or an actor in an interview, say that you can be whatever you want to be, that you should follow your dreams, and you have all the power within you to make it happen? That's what the world tells you. If you have problems, they're out there. It's your circumstances. It's your parents. It's your dysfunctional family. It's the prejudice you faced. It's the people who didn't support you. Maybe it's political or economic challenges. But the problems are out there. 
and you have inside you everything you need in order to solve them. Well, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that our fundamental nature is to be self-centered, is to feel like we're at the center of the universe, and we're so self-centered that we can't admit how self-centered we are. And that's the main reason why the world is such a miserable place, because you have a whole bunch of little centers of the universe running around, and only one person can actually be at the center of the universe, so we're constantly clashing with each other and fighting over it. The world says the problem's out there, the solution's in here. Christianity says the problem is in here, in you, in me, and the power of God out there is where the solution comes from. And that's actually good news, because if all of your problems are bound up in your circumstances and in the people in your life, or no longer in your life, who you don't have any control over, you're going to be endlessly frustrated. But if the main problem is you, then there's hope, because God has the power to change you. So the wind from heaven that came down at Pentecost points to how the Spirit comes in power from outside of us. The second sign of Pentecost was the fire that came to rest on each one of them. In the Old Testament, when God's glory shows up, it shows up as fire. When he's making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he appears as a blazing torch. When he first calls Moses, he does it through a burning bush. And when he comes down from Mount Sinai, he comes down in fire and smoke. So his special presence, his glory presence, his relational presence is depicted as fire. And whenever the fire of the presence of God showed up in the Old Testament, it was overwhelming. It was intolerable. Sometimes it was even fatal. And we looked at a story in 2 Samuel 6 last week that had an incident like that. Do you realize what's happening at the first day of Pentecost for Christians? Every believer is now a burning bush. Every believer has that glory of God, the holy presence of God that was once fatal, come inside of them. It came to rest on each one of them. In that room, you had the apostles who were the most ordained people in history, what does that mean? What does it mean to be ordained? Well, it means you're trained, you're a leader in the church, you're, you're set apart, you have a special role, and you have authority. The Bible says there should be leaders, there should be authority, there should be some who are called and ordained. But in the history of the church, there have never been leaders like the apostles because they were handpicked and personally trained by Jesus himself. So they were really, truly, extremely ordained. And yet, guess what? They're not the only ones who got the Holy Spirit. The fire rested on each one of them, the 12 apostles and all the others too. If you look back to chapter 1, you'll see that there were probably about 120 of them there. The others included male and female, their equivalent of clergy and lay. Everybody received the fire of the Holy Spirit. So there's no separation between congregation and upfront leaders. And that's going to be important as we reflect on the true meaning of Christian worship over the next few weeks. But what does it feel like to have the Holy Spirit come on you like that? When Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes upon him, he hears a voice saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
That's Jesus. But in Romans 8, we're told the same thing for all of us as Christians, that the Spirit comes into our heart and bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And in Galatians 4, it says the Spirit of God comes into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The fullness of the Spirit, the job of the Spirit, is to come in and tell you about his love for you, his delight in you as his child. So how does the Holy Spirit do that? In his final teaching to the disciples before he went to the cross, in John chapters 14 to 16, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit whom he promised to send. He basically says, look, I've told you many things, but the Spirit will take what I've told you and make it real to you like never before. He will make my teachings come alive as this fiery reality in your heart. Imagine a pretty ordinary scene with me for a moment. Imagine a father and his young son walking. They're walking along and talking, but at one point, the father picks his son up off the sidewalk, up into his arms, and they hug, and they say that they love each other, and then the father puts the boy back down, and they keep on walking. Here's the question. Was that little boy more of a son when he was in his father's arms than when he was walking alongside him? Well, legally, no. He was as much his father's son on the sidewalk as he was swept up into his arms. Legally, there's no difference between the two. Objectively, no difference. But subjectively, experientially, there's all the difference in the world. In his father's arms, he was receiving the experience of love. He knew he was loved. When you are filled by the Holy Spirit, you feel the embrace of your heavenly father and his love for you. And it changes you. It's an assurance of who you are. It's taking the things that you might know in your head Maybe you've been taught them since you were young, or maybe you've come to believe them as an adult, but it takes the Holy Spirit for them to become real. The Holy Spirit enables you to grasp the reality that if someone as all-powerful as that loves me, if he delights in me, if he has gone to infinite lengths to save me at infinite cost to himself, if he says that nothing can ever separate me from his love, not even death, if he promises to always hold on to me and that he will glorify me and make me perfect and take everything bad out of my life eventually, if all of that is true, then why am I worried about so many things? Why am I angry and resentful towards people? Why do I care so much about money? Why does it bother me that the person on my mind lately, or maybe for years, has upset me or hurt me or disappointed me? That's the voice of the fullness of the Spirit, the advocate, persuading me, arguing with me, drawing me into the light of God's love and God's will for me. And when you can talk to yourself like that, when you know it's the Spirit's voice, then you have it. And what does it look like on the outside? 
Well, apparently, it looks like you're drunk. In verse 13, we read, Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Later in the New Testament, Paul writes, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means being filled with the Spirit must be like being drunk, but also that it's not like being drunk. Let me explain. The reason they thought they were drunk, the the onlookers, was because of the joy and the courage they saw in these people. They were sharing the gospel without inhibition in public, at risk to themselves. And they were too overjoyed to care what people thought of them. Alcohol does something similar. It takes away your inhibitions and gives you courage because you're so happy, right? So in that sense, being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk. Because to feel your Father's arms around you, to have your Heavenly Father's love for you as a fiery, burning reality in your heart, makes you joyful. It does give you courage. But the Spirit does it differently. You might know that alcohol is a depressant. That doesn't mean it makes you depressed. When people get drunk, they're actually often quite loud and boisterous, and they seem pretty happy as well. No, alcohol is a depressant because it depresses your brain functions. The reason you're happy when you're drunk is because you're stupid. It's because you're less aware of the reality around you, because you can no longer think straight. You're happy through your stupidity because alcohol is a depressant but the Holy Spirit is not. The Spirit gives you joy through alertness and wisdom, not through stupidity, because he actually increases your awareness, your insight into reality. The Spirit says, hold on, the one person whose opinion actually matters will do anything for you, has done everything for you, and will never let you go. The Spirit is always pointing us to our Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit makes you more and more aware of that reality. He shows you all of reality. And as a result, the things that used to bother you start to diminish in their importance. There's stupid happiness and there's alert happiness. And the Holy Spirit gives you joy and wisdom by making you more aware of reality, but especially by assuring you that you are God's child, beloved by him. So the wind of Pentecost signifies that the Spirit has come in power from outside of you. The fire of Pentecost points to the Spirit's role in making God's love come alive inside of us. It becomes this fiery new reality in our hearts. The third sign we have in Acts 2 are the tongues. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then, if you skip down a few verses, it says in verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Let's be clear, this is not speaking in tongues, the kind of speaking in tongues that people associate with Pentecostalism. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that kind of speaking in tongues and says someone has to be there to interpret. And so he's assuming that if you're speaking in, let's call them Pentecostal tongues, 
you will not be understood. But here in Acts 2, everyone understood those tongues in their own language. It was a miracle. So what did they say as they spoke in those tongues? They were joyful, but they weren't just talking about how happy they all were. It says in verse 11, they were declaring the wonders of God. And the Greek word there refers to the miraculous acts of salvation in history that God has performed. For example, in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea by which God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. But in the New Testament, the wonders of God converge on the miraculous way that he has saved us through Jesus, through the incarnation and through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is to be joyfully obsessed with the gospel. You want to worship God and praise him and thank him. You want to share your faith. But it's also incredibly significant that this first presentation of the gospel was in every different language at once. Luke, the author of Acts, carefully lists all the different nations represented in Jerusalem. That's what happened at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Jews lived all over the world, and they came back for the great festivals, and most of them didn't speak Hebrew as a first language. So when the gospel was first preached to the world, it was preached in every language at once. By a deliberate miracle here, God made sure that there was no language and therefore no culture, no race that had precedence over any other in the Christian faith. Laman Sane was a historian of West African Christianity and Islam until his death just over a year ago. From Gambia originally, he taught in Ghana for many years and ended up at Yale University. I once went to his house for a barbecue when I was at a conference in New Haven. I never expected that, that someone like him would invite me over. He was a remarkable man. In his book, Translating the Message, he points out that Muslims would say that the Quran cannot be translated. Sure, you can get the Quran in English, but it's not the real thing. It's not considered the Quran by Muslims. As far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. All original revelation was in Arabic. And so if you want to hear God's word, you must hear it or read it in Arabic. Translations are not really God's word. Laman Sane says Christianity is totally different from that because of Pentecost. We do believe the word of God can be translated. If you have it in Chinese, or if you have it in Swahili, or if you have it in English, that is the word of God in Chinese or Swahili or English. In his critique of Western colonialism, Whose Religion is Christianity?, and this is a book that I'm going to be ordering for the Courtright Library this coming week, he says that Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion on earth. It takes radically different forms. Because of Pentecost, there is no one language. There is no one culture that is the right culture. And so Christianity comes into every culture and renews every culture, but at the same time honors every culture. It has this amazing diversity. Why? Well, because of Pentecost, because God refused to let one culture, one language, one race be the predominant one in Christianity. What does this mean practically? 
All of our cultures are different. We have different understandings of all kinds of things. Christianity doesn't steamroller those differences. But here's where you have to be careful. You must not think that your particular kind of Christianity in your culture is real Christianity. And sometimes we just make that assumption almost subconsciously. I remember when I was a student in Beijing in China, uh, I went to an international church. It was incredible, the diversity of that congregation. And there was a Nigerian preacher who was fantastic. He would preach for well over an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, and he would jump around the stage. He was so animated, he would shout. And I had a friend who just couldn't deal with it. And he thought it was too emotional. He thought it, it, it couldn't be edifying. It couldn't be really good to have that kind of preaching. And that was a kind of arrogance, I think. And the Holy Spirit is grieved by that sort of cultural, linguistic, even racial pride. In the world today, churches that lift up the power of the Spirit and for whom the Holy Spirit is at the center of their theology, those churches are the most truly interracial and multicultural human institutions in the whole world. On Tuesday, on May 25th, it will be one year since George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. The scourge of racism runs deep among us and within us. Education has not put an end to it, nor have politics. The message of Pentecost is that God calls us in Jesus Christ to be part of a church that is shaped and empowered by the Holy Spirit who holds out the promise that there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death from racial injustice among other curses. The hope that the old order of things is passing away. And for that, we need to come back to Jesus. I've already said that Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. But if we go back in the Bible to the very first Passover, as God's people were about to begin the exodus from Egypt, out of slavery, to the promised land, 50 days after that first Passover, you would have found them gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they were going to receive the law of God, including the Ten Commandments. There was wind and fire at Mount Sinai too, as there was in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Everyone was terrified. When God spoke, the fire came down, and the people couldn't stand it. And they went to Moses and told him, you go up and talk to God. That's how God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, the Israelites. Moses was the mediator, and he went up, and he got the word of God, and he brought it down. And when they sinned, he prayed for them. He was the mediator. But things take a turn in a much better direction at Pentecost. The fire doesn't just come down to the top of the mountain. It comes down on every single Christian. And we don't get the law, we get gospel, that we are saved by grace, that even when we try to earn God's approval and, and live according to the law, which we can't do, we cannot win his favor, even if we could, but that salvation comes only as a gift. Moses was great, but Jesus Christ is greater. He wasn't just a man, 
but he was both God and man. And so he and only he could bridge the gap between us, the alienation we experience in relationship with God. When we sinned, Jesus didn't just pray for us. No, he died for us. Matthew tells us that the moment Jesus got on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And that fire, that glory, which was back in the Holy of Holies in the temple, that was fatal before, now that you are in Christ, comes into your life, comes into the heart of who you are, and becomes your true identity. Again, that you are loved, you are forgiven, you are made whole, made new. And if you really want to understand what happened at Pentecost, you don't just go back to Exodus 19, to Mount Sinai. You, you have to go all the way back to Genesis, where you will find another long list of the different nations in chapter 10. All those people got together to try to build a tower called the Tower of Babel. They tried to put up this tower, a temple, a new religion without God. They said, we want to make a name for ourselves. They were proud in their defiance of God, and so God judged them. He confused them through language, and they were forced to give up their building project. They had one language, it says in Genesis 11, but they could not understand each other. And that is what it comes down to. The human race is divided into all its warring factions and cultures and races because of our pride and our arrogance. We are in rebellion against God. But at Pentecost, there are all these different languages, but they could understand one another, which means that through the coming of the Holy Spirit, the curse of Babel, the confusion, the division, the conflict is being reversed. And people who were once at each other's throats, people who couldn't understand each other, are now able to understand each other. They're even being brought back together. Why? Because Jesus took the judgment on himself so that there could be a new and living way for us to draw near to him, for us to be redeemed and sent out to love and to serve. You know what it means to be part of a church, to be part of this congregation? This isn't just a way for you as an individual to get inspired or, or for you to, to meet people who share your faith and have common interests. This is a way for you to live out gradually, slowly but surely, the undoing of the curses that have come into the human race that divide people. This is a way not only for you to grow in your faith, but it's a way for the barriers to come down between the cultures and the races. It's a way for us to show the world how the human race can be healed, how that is God's desire under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who alone can address what is within us that leads us to this division. So I want to invite you right now, we're going to have a moment where we pause in silence to ponder the gift of the Holy Spirit. How are you inviting the Spirit to whom you can speak in your prayers? How are you inviting him into your life? How are you stepping out in faith towards him?
Let's pray or meditate on that in silence. Holy Spirit, you always point us to Christ. That is your primary purpose. And so I pray that wherever we are on that journey of experiencing you, whether we feel like it's been a long time, maybe like we've never been caught up into the arms of our Heavenly Father, or whether we are brimming full of that love, I pray that you, by your power, by your persuasion, would point us to Christ, that we might grow in relationship with him, he who loves us with a love that never fails. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.